happy to continue in this series through Genesis uh, where God has just been blessing us deeply uh, through his word, softening our hearts. So this week, this past week, we looked at kind of the initial act of temptation and what happened and how important it is to understand the nature of temptation, where it comes from, and how we participate in it oftentimes. And it draws out and lures our hearts into sin. This week, what we want to look at is actually the repercussions of sin in the world. We're going to look at the second half of Genesis 3, the the thing that we feel every single morning when we wake up. We're going to see how deep and wide and pervasive the curse of sin that has touched us all, that is on our souls. And and what we we, uh, must see is that we got to feel this way. We've got to know how deep and pervasive and wide it is so that we can know an even deeper grace, amen? If sin is a shallow issue to God's people, grace will be a shallow issue to God's people as well. You know, I know it's November, guys, but, um, and by the way, isn't this gonna be the best New Year's Eve ever? It's going to be amazing, isn't it? It's going to be a great celebration for us as we bring close to this year. But I was thinking about some Christmas hymns this week. I was thinking about this one that a fellow by the name of Isaac Watts wrote. And it's, it's called Joy to the World. You've sang it before. There's a, I think it's the third verse in it that has everything to do with Genesis 3. Let me read it for you. I will not sing it. I'll spare you that. But it says this, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. No more let sins and sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. What we are going to discover today, church, is that God's grace has abounded all the more to every place that the curse of sin has touched. So we're gonna dig into that today. And our big idea for Genesis 3, uh, 7 through 23 is this. Rebellion against God causes pain, it causes conflict, and it causes death. But confession leads to life through grace. So let's dig into that. The first point is this. The Lord confronts sinners in order to lead us to confession. I'd never, I'd never thought about this before, but what we're going to see in the first, you know, 7 to 13 here, what we're going to see in Genesis 3 is that the Lord is actually interrogating Adam and Eve to get them to the point of confession of their sin. I never thought about this, never crossed my mind at why God had asked so many questions of them. And really what we see about confession is that it's a model for how we will relate rightly to God after sin has entered the world. He does it right in the garden for us. Some of us in this room can't stand conflict, and some of us, let's be honest, we like it a little too much, right? But no matter where you are on the spectrum, the confidence that we have in Jesus gives us strength and power to lean into the biggest and most pervasive conflict that any of us have ever faced before, which is our conflict with God, our Father in heaven, because of sin. One of the single best lessons I've ever learned was from my friend Rod uh, when I was doing a church planning residency at his church at Christ Church in Swanee, and he said, he said, um, and he just kind of said it in passing. He said, one of the lessons I've learned in life is that no matter how painful conflict is, lean into it. Don't lean away. 
because it will find you. If you lean into it, God will bless you as you walk into conflict with the power of his spirit. So that's what we want to do today is we want to lean into the conflict and learn from what has happened in Genesis chapter three, because what it does is it models for us a new way to relate to God post sin. Uh, And so let's look at Genesis three, seven through 13. I'll ease through this with us here. The word of God says this, then the eyes of both were open. This is after they had partaken of the fruit of the tree that God told them not to. And they knew that they were naked. And so they immediately respond to this and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What a pathetic picture for us, right? And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And the man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked, Adam? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you had gave me, this is a nice sidestep for a man, right? The, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, another sidestep here, the serpent deceived me and I ate. It's nobody's fault, right? That's what we see in Genesis 3 is it's becoming unraveled here. The fruit is eaten like we talked about last week and immediately mankind knows that something is deeply wrong in their identity, There is shame. I am not enough. We are not enough. God is among them. He's always been among them. And because of this rebellion, that's sure to bring death into the world. Now their first instinct is to do what? To hide. To hide from God. So where's the deception here? The deception is that somehow they believe that God won't see them in the trees. But we know from Genesis 1 that he's the God of the trees too, right? You know, it makes me think of uh, when, when my oldest daughter Tatum was younger, her favorite game to play was hide and go seek, right? Anybody else hide and go seek? It's your game. It's what you play. Well, the, you know, we still played around our house as well, but, but when she was younger, the, the place she would always go and hide is behind the curtain in the living room. You know, and, and, and the picture is this, you know, she's behind the curtain, her toes are sticking out under the curtain, and the curtain is moving around like this, and I'm walking around. Man, where could Tatum be? Is she in the cabinet? And you just hear, <laughs> you know, and the, the, the curtain's moving around and then you go over and you find her. Oh, there she is. I couldn't believe it. This is the picture of the garden, right? This is the picture of the garden. When I read this account in the garden, I can't help but think about how Adam and Eve were like totter, toddlers trying to hide from God. We'll hide in the trees. He'll he'll never find us there. God's like, oh yeah, I made the trees too and I'm among them, right? And and, and the the reason why it's important to to sit here because, you know, we hide too. You know, we we hide too and we have, you know, more mature ways of hiding in our sin. But the question that God asked them, the interrogation as it ensues, begins with a question that I want you to consider today as well. Where are you? you. Where are you today? What is it 
that you are trying to hide in today? Where is it where you are trying to cover up and stitch your life together with fig leaves today? Where are you? Because behind the curtain of our sin, that's where we we hide. And the only thing is, is that we forget that God is behind that curtain as well. Hebrews 4.13 says this, that basically nothing is hidden from God in his sight. All is laid bare. All are naked and exposed is what the writer of Hebrews says. That, that's the nature of who we are. Now, you would think if we had the provision of grace that God has given to us, we have no reason to hide anymore, and we have the fact that we can't actually hide anyway, that we would want to confess our sins, but we don't, do we? We don't want to confess our sins because somehow, some way, we still believe that we can hide from God and that that, in fact, is a better place. Now, the scriptures tell us that this will actually go on throughout uh, history until Jesus returns. Book of Revelation uh, chapter six says this, uh, that, that many will try to hide from God all of their lives, even up until Jesus returns. But, but li- I want you to listen to the pain of exposure and how weighty it is in Revelation chapter six. Here's what the scripture says. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And at Jesus' return, here's what what they're calling out. Calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us. Hide us. We can't hide from him. Please hide us. From the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? The shame and exposure of sin, when we try to handle it on our own, leads us to always think very dark thoughts. I mean, just think about this. If you've ever been exposed in your sin in a major way, and many of us in the room have, right? You've been, you've been found out in a very, maybe some of us a very public way, maybe in, in, within our family, within our small group, our accountability group. The, the first thing that people do in the church when their sin is found out is they bolt, okay? That's what happens. That's what's been happening in the church since the church started. Everything in us wants to run and hide. And, and what we see in Revelation 6 is that, is that this, this endless game of hide-and-go-seek that started in the garden will have an expiration date. And when Jesus returns, it'll be clear that he has known all along what we've been hiding ourselves in. But the beauty is that when there is a provision for grace, we have another way out. It's just not through ourselves. And that's the beauty of the gospel that we're gonna learn about today. I mean, what if you could be found out and still loved and accepted by God? What if people could know who you really were and your status and standing before God didn't change? In fact, it grew deeper. Listen to what the, uh, Paul wrote in Colossians chapter three. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. He says this, for you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life appears, you will also appear with them in glory. He uses this hiding language, right? He knows that we want to hide, and he says what happens actually when you become a Christian is you become hidden in Christ. That means when God looks at you and his wrath is after sinners because he's a just God, that he can't find sinners because they're hidden in Christ, who is the perfection. He's the the perfect image of God, and we're hidden in him, and he's our substitute. That's what happens when you know Christ. But we see this, that the hardest thing for a sinner to do is to tell the truth, isn't it? 
It's the hardest thing to do. And because of this, what we see as we continue to unpack Genesis 3 here is that the Lord lovingly interrogates Adam in the garden. Let's think about this. Here's what God says. He asked the question. I've got a little chart. I've been liking charts lately. I hope you like them too. Uh, God says, where are you? Where are you, Adam? And Adam says, okay, God, I heard you, and I was naked, and I was afraid, and, and so I, I hid. And, and, and the first response to God when sin enters the world is fear and hiding. And I would say this. When sin enters your world, the same tape plays out, doesn't it? It's fear and hiding. It's that, it's that for some reason, maybe I won't be enough and Jesus won't be enough. And that, that's where we go to. And so th- this started in Genesis 3. It's the pattern that plays out in my sinful heart and yours as well. So where, where, what have you done? I heard, I heard you. And then, and then God replies to him. He says, you know, who told you you were naked, Adam? You know, he's kind of playing along with him. And the whole thing that God wants to do in this interrogation is to bring them to the point of confession of their sin, Right? This is why the the pattern that you see is that they finally say, you know, even though she made me eat it, I ate it. There's there's finally this confession, I ate it, right? Um, And so Adam responds to the second question. He says this, the woman you gave me ate of the tree and she gave me some and then I ate. It's almost like saying like, you know, like um, this person over here is really bad, but I'm kind of sorry too, I guess, maybe. You know, it's kind of like an apology like that, right? It's kind of this, but, but the thing you notice about how gracious God is, is that he even accepts that confession, that weak, sidestepping, blame-shifting confession he accepts. How gracious is God to do that? I mean, he could, have, he could have held their feet to the fire at that moment, but he accepts it here. And then God pursues Eve, and he says, you know, what have you done? And she does the same thing Adam does. The serpent deceived me, you know, so, hey, it was his fault, it wasn't really mine, but I did eat. And so you see this pattern that God is trying, he's, a, he's, he's pursuing them to, to such a place where they will actually confess their sin. And we do this, we blame shift and we try to avoid confession when the Lord's spirit convicts us because he's asking you these same questions today. Where are you, what have you done, right? Whenever you sin, it's why this overwhelming feeling comes over your soul whether you're a believer or not. And if you're a believer, you know that you've been taught in the scriptures that you're called to run to Jesus Christ and repent. Now, if you're not a believer, what you've been taught from your nature is to try to handle it on your own. And it never, ever, ever satisfies the wrath of God and it never can. And because of that, we just get better at hiding. We find better hiding spots. Instead of going behind the curtain in the living room, we actually do get in the cabinet. You know, we, we move to better places, more graduated ways of hiding. But at the end of the day, we still find ourselves at Revelation 6, running from the wrath of God, thinking the darkest thoughts imaginable because his, his, his conviction is so heavy on us. But we don't have to live that way as Christians. We can run to him instead of running from him like we sang about this morning. You see, because here's the truth. Anytime a sinner's guilt is uncovered, fear ensues in our heart. Anytime your guilt is uncovered, fear ensues in your heart because you know that something is drastically wrong in your soul. You weren't made to live this way. And, and, and what we see is that you know, when that fear ensues in our heart, we're not living in right relationship with God because as, as Paul told Timothy, he says God is not, you know, Timothy was really fearful. He was a disciple of Paul. He says God hasn't given us the spirit of fear, Timothy, you know, this ungodly fear, 
but he's given us one of power and of love and self-control. And so whenever we fear God because our sin is uncovered, we can't be pleasing to God. We need Christ to cover us. So the Lord obtains this confession here. And, and, and what we see is that God is concerned with quickly covering their guilt and shame. All in the same scene, we see him pursue the confession. They feel naked. They feel exposed. They realize they're naked and exposed. And God is so quick to do something about that. See, I think that's what keeps us from confessing our sins to one another so we can be healed. is because we think that we'll be exposed forever. God doesn't let them leave the garden without sacrificing for them and covering their guilt. Do you, do you see that? Why do you think that he'll do that to you? He's never done that. When you run to him, he will cover you. He will show you grace. But there are consequences to this sin, and they're, they're painful. Yet God promises that it won't last forever. Let's look at Genesis 3, 14 through 19 here. And what God's doing here is he's declaring really new oracles, new conditions for how mankind will relate to him and what the consequences of disobedience will be. Now, even though they are awful, they are not permanent and they're not as bad as they could be. Listen to this, Genesis. Let's look at the serpent first. He, he first kind of addresses the serpent in uh, verse 14. Read it for us, verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So the, the first part of this curse is about the animal that was actually used in the temptation, the reptile, right? The thing that led to the enemy's temptation was his own pride. And so the consequences to the serpent is one of forced humility. So apparently the serpent didn't crawl on his belly before the fall. I, I'm not going to speculate any further than that, but I'm just saying apparently he didn't. And it's interesting to consider. But what we see is that the serpent will eat dust all of the rest of the days of his life. And he will be the lowest of all creatures even though he's the craftiest of all. This creature must constantly be reminded of the consequences of sin and the pain he has brought to the world. But, but not just this consequence, we also, he also sets in motion this perpetual conflict between good and evil. That's why the word enmity is used. And, and the scriptures say that, that God is putting enmity between between, um, between the enemy, between the serpent, not the snake. I mean, some of you hate snakes. And you're like, I knew this. You know, was, God did this, you know. Uh, but but he's, he's, it's, it's really the spiritual realm that he's talking about here, that he's put enmity between the enemy, between Satan himself and mankind. And this is set in motion here, this perpetual conflict. So once the tree was eaten of, we realized that, uh, like we looked at in Romans 5 last week, we've eaten of that tree too. That original sin has touched our lives as well. And so the serpent will eat of dust, will be the lowest of all creatures. And we will also have this struggle to obey God and to follow God. And the enemy is always looking for someone to devour in a spiritual and also a physical way. But in the agony of this truth, it will be enemies and it'll be present in our walk with God. It'll be a struggle to follow God. 
there is what theologians call the proto-euangelion. Can you say that three times fast with me? It's this word that means first gospel in the Latin. So Genesis 3.15, anybody ever says, you know, where's Jesus in the Old Testament? Just take him to Genesis 3.15. He's really there from the beginning. He's in Genesis 1-2, but Genesis 3.15, let me read it for you again. He says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman. We, we just talked about that, between your offspring and her offspring. But here's, here's what'll happen. He, the offspring of Eve, shall bruise your heel and you shall bruise or strike, or you will bruise his head and and you shall bruise his heel. And so what he's saying here to the serpent is that, you know, what's, what's a stronger blow? Is it a, is, it a, is it a strike to the heel or a strike to the head? It's a strike to the head, isn't it? He's saying that there's gonna be pain in our relationship with the enemy for all of mankind and even for Jesus, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It wasn't easy for Jesus. But he's saying that, as Jesus said, it is finished as well. It'll be finished that Jesus will triumph over the enemy and crush his head. That's what Genesis 3.15 is telling us. That, that even though that the blows that are delivered by the enemy are so painful and they mess us up so much in our everyday life, that they will not be fatal to God's children. That's what Genesis 3.15 promises us. That the seed of the woman, the, the, you remember how we talked about how important the genealogies of the Bible are. Because God is so interested in connecting the first Adam to the second Adam. And he does this over and over and over again because the second Adam is the one that crushes the head of the serpent. He wants to connect us to that so that we can have confidence that we have authority over the enemy even when he tries to rule our lives and to tempt us and devour us as the scriptures say. And this is the promise that keeps God's people looking for a Messiah from the offspring of Adam. And you see this promise continue to play out and play out through the covenants in the Bible. This is why, this is why uh, th there's a promise to David in 2 Samuel, where, where it says that, that someone will, will, will come from his lineage where his kingdom and his rule will never end, King Jesus. We see the promise continue and continue and continue throughout the scriptures. But you also see this gospel connection with serpents throughout the Bible, right? So do you remember in, in Numbers 21, God's people had just been delivered from Egyptian slavery. And when they get out in the wilderness, I think they're thinking the wilderness might be like 40 days or something. No, it's 40 years. And they get out there and they start grumbling and complaining and getting impatient with the Lord. And what's the Lord do? Do you remember? He sends something out to them, right? He sends fiery serpents is what Numbers 21 says. And some of the people actually die from it. And then they repent and they're like, God, we're sorry. We didn't mean to do that. And then God gives them a sign. Do you remember what it is? It's, he, he instructs Moses to take a staff and put, to put a bronze serpent on it, right? And that anyone who has been bitten who looks at the bronze serpent will be what? Healed. Healed, right? Now, Jesus talks about this. And by the way, that's the sign that, that the medical profession uses today. I don't know if you've seen that. Look on an ambulance. It's there. But Jesus talks about this in, in John chapter 3. He says this. And Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. So must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You see, God has always been interested in telling us that Jesus will be victorious over the enemy. He's always been trying to tell his people that to convince our minds and our hearts through the spirit that he will fully and finally be victorious even though we have pain in this world. Now, the consequences don't stop with the serpent. They go to Eve. Genesis 3.16 says this. 
To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. And your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So this verse is interesting because it's not just talking about the process of actually having a baby. But he goes on to say that in pain, you shall bring forth or raise children. That it will be a struggle to raise children up in the Lord. That's what he's saying here. That our children will not obey us. That raising kids will be a cosmic struggle against sin. Some of us just think they're going through their teenage years or whatever, right? But it's more than that is going on. There's this cosmic struggle that's trying, seeking to devour your children. And it's part of the consequences of the fall. He says, in pain you shall bring forth children and you shall raise them up. Not just in childbearing, but bringing them up in the Lord as well. And not only is the work of raising children in the Lord going to be a battle, but you've also got this conflict in the marriage, he says, that the husband and the wife will be at odds because of sin, if not for God's spirit. The idea of this verse is that because the woman prompted the, the man to sin by giving him the fruit of the tree, because she took the position of her husband's, because he abdicated, frankly, um, that, that her... That her, that her husband's spiritual and physical leadership, um, rather than to design a partnership, would kind of be at risk here. Um, so he's saying that your desire will be to have your husband's role in the marriage. And one commentator, Alan Ross, said it like this. He says, he says, meaning this, that the woman, when at her worst, will be a nemesis to man or the husband. And the man, at his worst, would dominate the woman. Isn't that the picture you see of a toxic marriage right there? It is, right? It's when you're at odds. The man is domineering. The, the woman doesn't want the man to lead. This is how sin affects marriage. But you remember what Ephesians 5 says we looked at last week. What the Spirit comes to do is cause us to lay down our lives for the sake of one another, and we see a flourishing marriage come from that because that's what Jesus has done. That's the new way forward, even in marriage. So we see also Adam's consequences here, verses 17 through 19, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all of the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for, you, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So here we notice that Adam's consequences are also directly related to how he sinned. God is doling out the consequences in the exact way that they sinned. And so as a provider for his family or worker of God's garden, remember, that's what he was called to do, to, to work the ground um, and to lead his family, to be a worker of the garden. He says, eating will no longer be easy for you, Adam. It will be a struggle. It will be a struggle to tend the field. And play this out a little bit. Don't just think about farming. What this means for us is it'll be a struggle for you to eat no matter what your vocational field is, men. No matter what it is for you. Now, our relationship with work will be challenging. In some cases, we won't be paid what we need to be paid. In other cases, we'll work more than is healthy for our family and for our souls. In other cases, we'll, we'll, we'll be in vocations where we'll have domineering bosses that abuse their authority and blackmail us and do all kinds of stuff, right? I mean, it'll be hard to work 
That's what he's saying. It'll be hard to eat. It'll be hard to work. We'll have this relationship with our work that is not as it ought to be, that, that thorns and thistles will tempt to choke out God's good provision. And you'll be tempted to believe that it's simply by your own labor and not God's good provision that you eat and that you earn. And because of that, your relationship with what you do earn can be toxic. This is why Jesus talks over and over and over about the love of money and how toxic it is for our souls. And it comes from a wrong relationship with our work. That's where it starts. And so humanity sinned by eating and thus will now struggle to eat. Eve led her husband to sin and now, and now will be, because of the fall, in a power struggle with him forever. The two brought pain into the world through sin and now painful toil will hit every part of their existence, our existence. The serpent led them to sin and so he will be destroyed and God leaves no stone unturned in how pervasive the consequences of sin are. That's, that's humbling for us to think about. That, that, that what we experience is toil, as strife, as struggle in raising kids and, and being married or being single, whatever that is, is because of the fall. It's not because you had a bad day. It's not because this is 2020. It's because of the fall. Every year is 2020 because of the fall. That's the norm. But God does not stop there. He doesn't say, hey, y'all get out of here now. Because if he stopped there, we'd have no good news. But let's look at the last point here. As he sends them out, God covers us with grace. Let's look at the last five verses of Genesis 3 here. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. That is a key verse that is often overlooked. We're gonna dig into that. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So, so this first verse we gotta pay attention to. So Adam still has this endowed authority, this dominion to name creation, right? Well, that includes giving his wife a name. His wife doesn't have a name. If you look at Genesis 1, Genesis 2, even the first seven eight verses of Genesis 3, what's she called? Woman. She doesn't have a name yet. And so Adam, by faith here, names her a very interesting name. He names her Eve, which means what? The mother of all living. But well, hold up. I thought the consequences of sin were that death would, would come about this couple. Well, yeah, but there was this promise that God also gave that there would be triumph. Adam, in naming his wife, here in Genesis chapter three, is exercising faith that God's word is true. Do you see this? It is so key for us that Adam is taking God at his word, even though he denied his word in Genesis chapter two and the first part of three, he's taking God at his word here. Adam is hooking himself into the promise that from the lineage of their family and specific promise to the woman, that one of her offspring would, cry, would, would crush the enemy and that humanity would once again experience unbroken fellowship through the triumph of Jesus Christ. That's what's happening with her name. It's this beautiful promise for us. Now God enters in even more intimately here. 
They've made their confession. They're exposed. They realize, hey, God's in the trees, not just you know, in the clouds as well, and not just in the cool of the days, everywhere. He sees me. Nothing is hidden from his sight. We see that as well. And, and then what God does after they've made their confession, which is the beginning of a right relationship with God for any sinner, is confession. And it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance, right? That's what Romans 2 teaches us. And what we see is that God's so gracious that even though death is so familiar to us, it surprises us, but it's so familiar to our world. It makes us grieve that there's this promise that God is actually the first one to kill anything in the Bible, right? What's he do here in Genesis 3? He shows us how we're going to relate rightly to him. He leads Adam and Eve to confession, and he's the first one to take a life. He kills an animal. We don't know what it is, but we know he has skins. He gives them a proper covering before he sends them out of the garden. And what this shows us is that the way to relate rightly to God, which we'll see later in the scriptures, is that blood must be shed for the forgiveness of sin. The book of Hebrews tells us that. But not only that, we see that Jesus' innocent blood is sent for us, is, is, is you know, taken for us, and, and it's, this, it's this principle that we will need a substitutionary sacrifice to relate rightly to God. I know this is a lot of stuff that we're taking in here, but all of this is in Genesis chapter three, that even though we've blown it, he provides for us, even when we're in this pathetic and vulnerable state where we can't make it happen for ourselves, God is providing. And, you know, this last part of the verse is a little bit of a mystery with the angels that are guarding the entrance to the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, the, 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 the entrance to the garden. What we do know is this, is that God in his grace does not desire for his people to continue on forever in this painful state, that, that physical death will actually be a grace to the church, to God's people. Do you realize this? Because as Romans 8 tells us, we'll be, we're, we're, all of creation is longing to be relieved from the pain of this physical life that started in Genesis chapter three. And that's why the scriptures show us that to relate right, rightly to God, we've got to be born again spiritually. And that when we enter into his presence, we will be given new physical bodies. But we must die. You, you must realize that you are dead spiritually one and confess that. And we will all die physically. And when we die physically, God promises to give us new bodies that relate rightly to him, not in this broken way. And you are thinking and racking your brain now, thinking about all of the ways that death is pervasive in your, your soul, your family, your friends, and in this world. It's all over the place. But the promise is that it won't last forever, church. And that's great news for us. That's how we can walk into the darkest situations and share hope with people because it's not going to be this way forever. It's not going to be this way forever. All of your life is not going to be 2020, okay? It's not going to be this way forever. Our, our passage starts with Adam and Eve trying to cover themselves pathetically with fig leaves. So they're going to rip and tear, and they're not going to do anything. And it ends with God covering us. That's the story of your soul, too, if you're a Christian. Did you know that? It starts with you trying to cover yourself from sin, and realizing when you come to the end of yourself that God desires to cover you far more thoroughly through the blood of Jesus. Listen to this from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We need a better covering. We need a better clothing, a clothing in righteousness. And 2 Corinthians 5 teaches us this. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him 
we might become the actual righteousness of God, that we might relate rightly and act rightly before God, that we would be his. Notice that Jesus had to actually become sin. He couldn't just talk about sin. He couldn't just point to a way out of sin. He had to become sin so that we could become righteousness. And this is the picture that he paints for us in Genesis chapter three when he clothes Adam and Eve through a substitutionary sacrifice, something they couldn't do by themselves. I wanna close with Romans 5, 18 through 21. He talks about this as well. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. He's talking about Adam. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came, it came in to increase the trespass. But here's the beauty right here, Romans 5.20. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Every place that it seemed like sin was more pervasive than God's provision, grace has actually abounded further and deeper and wider and higher in your, higher in your hearts. That's the promise of the gospel that we get in Jesus, church. Where sin abounds and it does abound, and don't be surprised when it abounds, we can relish in the astounding reality of God's grace. That we are... Though we're not what, what we want to be, we're not what we were in, in Christ. And he's conforming us forever to the image of Jesus. So I want to pray for us, and I want to turn to this table in faith today and relish in the fact that God has always provided for his people. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that um, the enemy did not outwit, uh, outwit you. He didn't outwit your plan from the beginning of time to save your people. So Lord, I pray that you this morning would, would meet your people in a profound way. That Father, that, that as we think about our lives, we think about um, everything that's troubling us this morning. We think about the pervasiveness of sin, the conflicts that we have, the problems in our nation, problems in our home, the problems with our kids, and we see how pervasive sin has been. Our bodies don't function like they should, how deaths hit every corner of our lives, that we would realize that this isn't going to last forever. And that even in the struggle, even in the pain, even in the toil that we experience right now, the, the grieving that you are meeting us and you will never stop. There will never be a day where your grace doesn't abound over the pervasive nature of the curse of sin. And because of that, Lord, we come to you in faith at this table today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.